This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in the design, development, and integration of technology in a K-12 as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Stephen Uno, an editor here at Ed Surge, a national publication focusing on K-12 and higher ed. In 2015, when Vanessa Ford's daughter Ellie was four years old, she came out as transgender. Vanessa says she was lucky to have a strong support network and an understanding school, but she was still a little overwhelmed. Even though she had spent 14 years as an educator at DC public schools, she realized there was a lot she still didn't know, such as how to make a support plan for her daughter. Now a board member for the National Center for Transgender Equality, she's sharing her story at conferences, teacher trainings, and in outlets like the Washington Post. In March, at the ASCD Empower Conference in Chicago, which is a conference for educators with a focus on equity, she presented with Becca Mui, an education manager at GLSEN, an LGBTQ advocacy group focused on schools. Afterward, they shared some of their thoughts about how schools can navigate gender-neutral bathrooms, other parents, and why they encourage everyone to do a little gender reflection of their own. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. I want to talk a little bit about gender-neutral bathrooms to start. This may be the first point of entry into this topic for many people who are listening and parents may have some strong opinions. So how do schools address this sensitively yet practically? Vanessa? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's something that comes up a lot as we are addressing the needs of students. So a gender-neutral bathroom is a really critical bathroom to have that students should have access to. What's most important about that bathroom, though, is that no student is relegated to that bathroom. No adult is telling certain students that they must use it. It should be available to students who want the additional privacy, whether those are trans, gender non-conforming students, or other students who necessitate privacy. And what's critical behind the bathroom piece is that all students in a school should be able to use the bathroom that matches their gender identity with an option for a gender neutral bathroom if that student chooses. Do you have any language that you recommend that schools use with parents, or how do they yes. how do they convey this? So one of the complaints that some parents have is that they don't want a transgender person in the bathroom with their child. There is a great resource from Gender Spectrum that gives administrators language to specific parent concerns. It's under resources in Gender Spectrum for Education, and. One of the things that administrators or teachers can say to a parent who is upset by this policy is that there is a gender neutral bathroom available to their child should their child feel that they need a private space. Yeah, Becca? Thank you. I think it's also critical. We talk a lot about bathrooms and there's been a lot of visibility, but what we're really looking for in terms of these supports is for young people to be able to exist in the space where we're telling them they need to show up. So Mm -hmm. schools are something that we require young people to go to. So we need to make sure that the building itself that we're asking them to be in is a space where they can actually exist and move in. Gender neutral bathrooms are also really critical because we know that not all people identify as male or female. And so just having those two options, even with 
with a supportive policy that says mm -hmm. uh, you know, anyone can use the bathroom of their identity, that is not going to really support gender fluid, gender nonconforming, mm -hmm. and non-binary or agender youth um, who need a space to go as well. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned a space where transgender people can exist. What does that look like when it comes to school in, in a broader context? Yeah, absolutely. And so we talk a lot about safe and supportive environments. So being able to exist also means that they're in a space where they're not being bullied or harassed for being who they are. It means that when we have locker rooms where we are asking people to identify within a gender binary, saying this is a girl's locker room or a boy's locker room, we understand that we are leaving people out. So in an inclusive space, we would have spaces for all people to be able to go to their classes to learn, but also to do things that humans need, like go to the bathroom, like change, and to be addressed as they need. Are you finding that schools are responsive to these changes or not responsive, or how does the gamut run in this case? Yeah. We get this question a lot, I think, because GLSEN is a national organization, and it's a really tricky one because, you know, the long and the short of it is that um, it looks different in every place, and that there are schools across the country who are putting in policies that are supportive for their trans, gender nonconforming, and LGBTQ students in general. And then there's a lot of schools that are still working on it, and I think what we look at in terms of policies sometimes is at a state level, but Vanessa has mentioned there are times when there is a state policy that's not being enforced in the actual schools. So Vanessa, to get back to you, you are the parent of a transgender child and you've spoken about the desire to make your story an advocacy piece. Uh, why was that important to your family? That's a great question because not every family decides, let's speak up and tell the world <laughs> about what we're going through. But when our daughter Ellie transitioned, it took us a lot of learning. We reached out to a lot of different organizations, people. We knew, based on what our child was telling us, that we had to make a change, but we didn't know how to make that change. And as an educator who spent 14 years in the classroom and now leads other educators in learning, I realized there was so much I didn't know. So learning about how to approach schools, learning about how to talk with administrators and make a support plan for my child so that she could enter school being safe was something that I needed to learn. When I went through that process, I realized that others could learn from what we were doing. And I think storytelling is a very, very powerful way for folks to learn from others' experience, to build empathy. Our child was safe, loved by us, by community, by school. We did talk with her about these choices, but knowing that she was so young, we did make some choices around that. And since then, now that she's much older, she makes those decisions about advocacy. But what we've found is that it's helped parents nationally, parents, teachers, they start to understand the story. They understand from the perspective of parents. They understand from my perspective as an educator and from Ellie's perspective um, that we share how they can then listen to the children in their lives, whether they're a parent or whether they're a teacher. There are plenty of educators and parents out there who think that they don't know any trans youth, when in fact there will be at some point trans youth who come through their pipeline. And if they even have a story to grab onto, something they connected with, an emotion they felt that helps them support that child, then we know that child's life has been improved by us telling our story. 
So you just mentioned that you've heard from others as a result of sharing yes. your story. What have been some of the responses or reactions that have most resonated with you? Me too. I thought I was the only one. I didn't know that I could listen to a four-year-old when everybody was telling me I shouldn't, but I know my kid is telling me who they are. Me too, me too, me too. Your story sounds so familiar. Our family has a similar issue or we went through the same thing and for the other people we hear from is that's nothing like our story but can you connect me with somebody whose story ours is like and so one of the things that I think I've been most proud of in this work is being a parent for whom others can reach out to to get connected into networks that are more local to them or to larger networks so they don't feel alone you're not the only parent in Wyoming going through this right now it might feel like that but you're not the only parent and how can we get connected into those larger networks so you're not alone and so your child can be supported and what about networks for school leaders and people in schools to get connected and talking about this issue? Where do they turn? Well, I'm going to defer to Becca on that because she can connect you. Yeah, that's part of GLSEN's work. Um, our focus is LGBTQ supports and visibility in K-12 schools. And so we do have a network of educators and administrators, superintendents, and also other organizations that are working both school-based and in LGBTQ advocacy so that we can help folks who are doing this work and who so often feel like they're the only ones, whether they're a supportive educator or a parent or a student. It can feel really isolating to be doing this work and to feel like you're doing Doing it alone and so a lot of our work um, through social media and through conferences is to try to connect folks so that we can learn from each other and that we can also do this work together. We had a number of educators come up uh, principals after our presentation this morning and three folks said there's a parent really struggling they want to support their child may I give them your information. And so all of a sudden, I can connect with that parent. I can help that parent navigate their system. I've already met the school leader at that school. And all of a sudden, you have more supports, even virtually, in place for that child. And that's why it's really important to me to be part of that. Glisten also has a chapter network of amazing volunteers across the country. We have about 40 chapters right now. And so those folks are points of contact for those communities. So they can go into schools and they can also create professional development experiences and support um, where, where they are. Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home and it is now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well prepared to practice their unique multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government and military, or to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That address once more is emporia.edu grad. So you mentioned your presentation. I want to touch on that a little. You presented here at ASCD today and yesterday. And you, uh, Becca, you had a really interesting exercise for everyone in the presentation where you asked them to do a little bit of self-reflection and imagining. Can you take us through that exercise a little bit? 
Absolutely. And we think it's really critical to have and build in some reflection on gender to folks that have come to a workshop to look at trans-inclusive supports. Um, there can be this tendency to other when we're talking about trans and gender non-conforming student supports and to think about how big is this population? Where are they? If we don't have them yet, should we do this? And are we only putting this these supports in place if one student has come out or one family member or faculty member has come out. And so we do these exercises in order to make sure that folks understand that the supports that we're talking about are really critical for everyone, that we're looking at breaking out away from gender stereotypes and addressing the larger picture of the patriarchy and sexism and as it fits into this work as well. And so we do this reflection also because we want people to understand that we bring our own gender identity, our gender experiences to this work and that we are a part of this work as well. And so this is an activity that allows folks that have come to this to really reflect on their own experience with gender. I'm going to talk through just some questions and pause for reflection. So thinking about in these questions, they'll go between gender identity, which is often like represented by a brain or a heart, which is the way that someone thinks about their own gender, and then also gender expression, which is the way that we communicate our gender through the way we're dressed, through our mannerisms, our tone of voice, how we hold our bodies, and also just decisions that we make about accessories and things like that. What is your gender identity today? If you were to think about these ideas in terms of an imaginary spectrum between masculinity and maleness on one side, all the way over to another side of femme-centered, femaleness, where might your gender identity fall? What is your gender identity when you were in first grade? And imagining the spectrum from femme to masculine of center, what is your gender expression today? And what was your gender expression when you were in first grade? What was your gender expression in eighth grade? What do you think your gender expression would have been considered a hundred years ago? What do you think your gender identity would be a hundred years from now? So that's really interesting. Why did you decide to hit on those specific points, first grade, eighth grade, 100 years ago, 100 years in the future? We like to bring those up because um, a lot of different reasons and part of how just to show that even for cisgender people, gender expression and our relationship to our own gender can change over time and is often influenced by other people, whether we're aware of it or not. 
The first grade question is really interesting and often comes up. Some folks will say, I had more freedom in first grade. In first grade, I was able to express myself outside of gender norms, and people weren't telling me, no, you should do this more this way, and you shouldn't wear that skirt, even if it's playful, or you need to be more masculine or more feminine, um, play these activities. We also see some people in first grade saying, when I was in first grade, I had to wear a uniform and I hated it, or my parents dressed me and I hated it and I had less agency. But either way, it kind of brings up this idea also because we have a sense that gender is for older people or that we should begin these conversations in middle and high school or when students are quote unquote ready. But we know that gender is at play in elementary and at a time, whether we're aware of it or not, influencing our decisions and our identity. So I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, segue a little bit into bullying. And I know it's an issue that every school deals with on some level. Do you address it differently for transgendered people? One of the things that's most important coming off this gender conversation with Becca is that any gender-based bullying should be stopped immediately. That includes things like, you throw like a girl, right? We hear that all the time in elementary school. And one of the things we encourage for any gender-based bullying is for the teacher to stop, but then also use it as a teachable moment. Why is that problematic? For trans and gender non-conforming youth, they are at a higher victimization rate for bullying, for harassment, for assault. And I wouldn't say that we address those things differently. We are just have a heightened awareness to ensure that we stop them immediately. That we have an eye on the school culture, on the language being used, and we stop things when we hear them. We also, though, need to be careful because a lot of trans and gender nonconforming youth actually have disproportionate disciplinary actions taken against them for things like dress codes violations or use of bathrooms or sometimes actually sticking up for themselves after repeated victimization. So while we often say, watch, listen, have eyes where there are not teachers, we also say be careful of that, that we're not just targeting our trans and gender nonconforming youth and keeping our eyes only on those youth. We're really keeping our eye on the culture around those youth to ensure they are safe. Yes, and I would say that is particularly true for trans youth of color. Um, we've looked at LGBTQ youth and know that um, LGBTQ youth of color face disproportionately high rates of discrimination at school. I also would like to say, GLSEN research, um, through our National School Climate Survey, we look at the school experiences of middle and high school LGBTQ-identified youth, um, and we look at bullying and harassment, and we did find that nearly 9 in 10 LGBTQ students um, experienced harassment or assault at school, and that gender expression, identity, and sexual orientation were among some of the highest characteristics for this. But of that population, we found that trans students um, were more likely to than other LGBTQ students to have negative experiences at school, and that also, similar to their trans peers, genderqueer and non-binary students experienced a more hostile school climate than their cisgender LGB students. So what are the important takeaways that schools can really um, learn from that research? Well, GLSEN research tracks our four supports that we recommend for inclusive schools. We think it's important for schools to be putting in inclusive actions that can help create in 
more supportive environments. And we recommend that they do this through four different supports. One support is comprehensive policies. So ensuring that schools' policies really state and enumerate and protect students in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity and gender expression. We also recommend supportive educators as an inclusive support. And that means that educators have had the professional development that they need and are being explicitly told by their administration that they are expected to be supportive educators. And again, provided the information that they need in order to do that, to interrupt anti-LGBTQ bullying and harassment. We've found that student-led clubs, often called GSAs, but can have lots of different names, but a club that has a focus on LGBTQ identity, community, or advocacy is an incredibly important support for a school to have. And also inclusive curriculum, making sure that young people see themselves, that curriculum is inclusive of LGBTQ identity throughout history and our contributions, but really in any subject area, but also making sure that it's a window for other students students that may not identify as LGBTQ to learn about and start to begin to respect and understand LGBTQ people. And to add on to the supportive educators piece, I think a lot of times we think of the educators in the building as solely the administration and the teachers. I think Becca and I feel very strongly that when you train a staff, it needs to be inclusive of all staff. So that includes the cafeteria, the janitors, the front staff, the bus, the bus driver. Not only are these individuals often the ones who run the school behind the scenes, they know our students, they know when they're struggling, they see them most often, and they also are the folks who tend to be alone with students in hallways, on buses, um, in spaces. And so ensuring that everyone at the school building is trained on best supportive practices is really critical. Yeah, and I would just say that with these four supports, Glisten Research has tracked them and that when these supports are present in schools, we find that they're related to less um, negative school experiences, such as homophobic remarks or feeling unsafe, and that they're more likely to have school staff that are intervening in name-calling, bullying, and harassment. And that with these four supports, we've also seen educational outcomes that are positive for LGBTQ youth, so that they're less likely to be absent from school because they feel unsafe. They're more likely to have um, a higher GPA and, and to have a greater sense of school belonging. So. What about listeners that may be thinking, I'd like to do something to make my school more inclusive, but I just don't know where to start. This sounds really overwhelming. What, what do you say to them? First, it can feel really overwhelming. You're not alone in this. I think one of the first things to do is to actually research, is there a GLSEN chapter in my area? If there's not a GLSEN chapter, what are our policies asking the administrator, a teacher, what are our policies on this? Speaking up. But some of the other things that teachers can do in their classrooms without any other actions are using a student's name and pronoun, their preferred name and their pronoun, even if they're not out to their families, even if they're not out in other classrooms, really respecting and affirming that student. They can also include posters or images of LBGTQ leaders who are part of curriculum, making sure there's visibility there. Becca, do you want to add? Absolutely. And I think 
Yeah, as you mentioned, just acknowledging that this can be a lot. And if we're not in a society that is necessarily talking about these identities and these things and these supports that are needed, so it can feel like a lot at the beginning. So I just encourage folks to be patient with themselves and also to do their own learning, to really go to websites and watch videos and listen and see what research they can find so that they can better understand and hear from on video people telling their own stories to better educate themselves before they really dive into the actions as well. Okay, great. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Check out our archive of past episodes at bit.ly slash edsurgepod. And if you like it, leave a rating on whichever podcast platform you listen on. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Unu, and edited by Chris Hattori. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. As always, thanks for listening.